Good morning to each of you. One of the things that I hope you know here at Grace, if you've been around for any length of time, is the level of effort and study and planning that our pastors put into preaching and teaching. Now, I'm the voice that most of you hear, or that you hear most, but that investment is true across our pastoral staff. And there's good reason for that. Because when we stand up here and we say, this is the word of God, it has a particular authority. And authority can be used for good or bad purposes. It can be positive or quite negative. So when we declare that this is what the scriptures mean, and we press in to say this is where the scriptures apply, how they speak into our lives, then we better have confidence that we are representing God in his word well. After all, James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That is sobering. What we proclaim matters. And your active understanding and embrace of that matters too. We should be like the Bereans. They're described in Acts chapter 17 verse 11 like this. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness, here it is, and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. In a sense, we speak from God, for God, from his word. So what we teach and how we teach matters. And that's why we devote hours of study. That's why we meet as a pastoral team. That's why we plan sermons and series in advance. That's why we think creatively about application. That's why we choose illustrations that do more than simply entertain. They illustrate. And that kind of commitment takes time. So, so this week, I decided to go above and beyond. Instead of just studying the book of Ephesians, I decided... Let's go to Ephesus. I mean, why be content to read secondhand sources when you can do firsthand exploration? Really? So the last week I've been in eastern Turkey, near the modern city of Izmir. Left late Sunday afternoon last week, got back on Friday night. I'm not sure what is day and night right now. And by the end of the sermon, you might agree with me. One of those days in the last week was spent among the ancient ruins of the third or fourth most important city of the known world, the Roman Empire, the city of Ephesus. And it was a glorious visit, as you can imagine, and quite timely for where we are as a church. So today I'd like to share with you a few visuals of my time there. Now, before I do that, I need to say this. Everything I just said was true, except for my reason for going. Actually, I was in Turkey at one of the several gatherings that are taking place this fall among global staff with Encompass World Partners. This was planned many months ago, and they're gathering there in several different sequences. And it made sense uh, to be there to either get to know some of those staff or to become reacquainted with ones that I already knew when they were gathered together. And so I accepted that invitation. I won't have the opportunity to meet a number of them otherwise for a few years just because of where they are deployed. Nonetheless, I was indeed in Ephesus, and I want to offer you proof of that. Look at the screens here. So this is part of that group that gathered, and you'll recognize a few of those team members. You see Renessa Belahovic, 
uh, facing us. A little toward the right, you see Jason Carmine, who's in the back looking the other way, not paying attention. You see <laughs> Florent Varak here on the left. These are global workers that our church supports in various places in the world. Next picture there. Here you see the ruins of Ephesus. This is at the top of the uh, long road that leads down into the heart of the city. And there are lots of places there that look a lot like that. Here you see uh, Hadrian's uh, temple, or at least the entrance there in commemoration of one of the leaders in the Roman world. And behind it, hard to imagine, were the famous bathhouses of the city of Ephesus. You see in the next picture uh, some of the archaeological digs of the ancient dwelling places. And some of those rooms were quite large, which could have accommodated groups of people who met as part of the church at Ephesus. The next picture you see is the famous library, which might be better called a shrine. It was built in 110 AD, so after Christ, to Julius Celsus, another famous uh, person in the Roman Empire. The next place you see is the Agora there, the marketplace, and it expands further than it looks there. Uh, far to the left, the right, a giant square, which uh, was the place for thousands of people as they sold their wares, as they bought things, as they shipped them in and shipped them out. The next picture you see is the famous amphitheater in Ephesus, a remarkable place to behold. 20 or 25,000 people could sit there, and it is quite well preserved. This was the place in Acts 19 where Paul said, I want to get in and speak to this crowd. And everyone who knew and loved him said, don't do it. They want your head. And he said, I don't care. I want to testify about Jesus moving. Here is the way to the sea. Uh, the sea uh, there, the Aegean Sea, actually came up to the end of that uh, path there, but over the course of a lot of time, silting actually pushed the sea much further out. Uh, many people would have traversed this on their way in and out of Ephesus. And finally, actual proof that I was there. This, <laughs> this is the side of the amphitheater there, and Paul would have stood down there uh, in, on the platform, which sometimes was used for uh, various uh, animal fights and uh, torture, but Paul said, because of Jesus Christ, I must speak to the crowd. Fascinating to be there. Last thing, the statue of Artemis or Diana. This was where 20 some thousand people were chanting in Acts 19. Great is Diana. Great is Artemis. This was a feature of their city and the God that they worship. They were proud of it. And so when the Ephesian believers said Jesus is Lord, there was a price to pay. Fascinating place to visit. I recommend that if you have a free week anytime soon that you go to Eastern Turkey and visit Ephesus. Today, we come to Ephesians chapter 3 in Paul's letter. I'd invite you to turn there. I hope you bring a copy of the scriptures with you so that we can all be like the Bereans to see if what is said is true. If you don't have a Bible, we'd be glad to give you one uh, as a gift to you or on loan to you. Just raise your hand there. You can return that if you have a Bible at home and just forgot yours. But above all, we want you to follow along. And in Ephesians chapter 3, for the first time in this letter, Paul gets particularly personal. He explains the calling that God had given to him and the revelation that God had made known to him and to his people. And in particular, in Ephesians 3, Paul writes about the significance of the church as the display of God's wisdom and glory. 
he highlights the big picture of what God is doing in the world. And we need this. We need this because it is very easy in our lives to see the the seeming lack of impact of the church or the persistent flaws of the church. You may have noticed this. The church is a very easy punching bag for people in the world. And it can also be a very easy punching bag for believers as they say, I love Christ, but the church, oh my. It is far too easy to take shots at the bride of Jesus Christ. But we need to see the bigger picture. It's a bit like the difference between following around a construction worker on a job site versus watching a time-lapse video of the entire project. When you follow a single worker around, you see all of the problems. You feel the tensions. You recognize the messes. You see when people are exasperated with each other, when there's a lack of teamwork, when there aren't enough resources. In other words, you see things in very painful and very personal terms. But if you watch a construction site through a time-lapse video, the perspective is completely different. You're, You're often looking from above. You see rapid progress. You see the big picture. You see this astounding development as something is rising up. You see where this is going and how impressive it will be. You understand the magnificence. Ephesians chapter 3 is this wonderful 30,000 foot view on the plan of God through the church. And it's meant to inspire us and to encourage us as God's people. And it's meant to put into sharp focus the magnitude and the significance of who we are. Let's read those first 13 verses together. As we often do here, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to read those aloud. I'm reading from the New International Version, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel, Paul writes, by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. 
This is the word of God. Thanks. You may be seated. We're going to be looking at these 13 verses today with three points, the first two of which we'll spend almost all of our time in the last just briefly. The first that we see, you can follow along in your worship program or gracepolaris.org slash program is about this concept of the mystery. First point, the mystery's nature. God unites Jew and Gentile in Christ. Now, there are several questions that arise in these first verses, particularly verses two to six, that have to do with the identity of Paul and the nature of this mystery and the timing of God's unveiling or revelation of it. Let's take those in order. First question, who's Paul? It's at this stage in his argument that Paul first really introduces himself and the personal role that he has in God's plan. Verse 1 is simply a a continuation of chapter 2. Remember, chapters and verses were inserted later to help our reading, but Paul is continuing the flow of his thought. For this reason, begs the question, for what reason? For reason of the grandeur of the church, this church made up of Jew and Gentile, existing as a community, verses 20 to 22 of chapter 2, as a family, as a temple rising up, For this reason, Paul writes, I serve Christ through bearing witness to the Gentiles. Paul, after all, was appointed directly by Christ to be his chief ambassador to the Gentiles, to the entire non-Jewish world. And yet Paul finds himself here in prison. Of all the things Paul could write about himself, he designates himself as prisoner. He's a prisoner because of the Jews. Because Paul had the audacity to declare a gospel that could also be received by the Gentiles. Preaching this vision of a new, of an undivided humanity and going to jail for it. That means that Paul right now is undergoing suffering for the very thing that he is writing about. Paul declared a law-free gospel to the Gentiles and ended up in prison, not just here, but in Jerusalem and in Caesarea and eventually in the capital city of Rome. Paul, a prisoner. But Paul knew he wasn't a prisoner simply of Rome, that he was most of all a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul knew amidst all of the unpleasant, painful circumstances of life that he was there because of Jesus Christ. That God was up to something bigger in his life. That God knows the bigger picture. 2022, believers sitting in this room today, do you believe that? Do you believe that God is up to something bigger with your life? Maybe you're here this morning and you're suffering. Maybe you're in a difficult place in life. Maybe this past week has been full of pain and sorrow and frustration And fear. And those things are real. You can taste them. But what about the bigger picture? Do you trust that God plans, that God sees in ways that you cannot? See, followers of Jesus learn to embrace God's picture even amidst the very unpleasant circumstances of life. Can you say that? 
Paul just gets started in recounting that in his own life. And, and then he breaks his train of thought and doesn't come back to it until verse 14. We'll look at that passage next week. Starting here in verse 2 in a great digression of sorts. Paul wants to explain something about his personal calling and about God's revelation through him, through the church, and how it all fits together. If last week was all about belonging in the body of Christ, then this week is all about revelation. This mystery of how God has arranged the church to show off his wisdom. And Paul knew that he was designated as an administrator, as a steward, we might say, of the grace of God for these Ephesians and really for all of the Gentiles in the world. God, Paul has this stewardship and he calls it a mystery, which begs for clarification. Next question, what is the mystery? In the English language, the, the, the language from birth for the vast majority of us, mystery is something dark. It's something secret. It's something obscure. It's something puzzling. What is mysterious is, is unexplainable. So we read mystery novels. We seek to unravel mysteries, to solve mysteries. They create intrigue for us because they're not generally understood. They're not easy to decipher. And those who can understand mysteries have a kind of secret knowledge. But the Greek word mysterion, from which we get our word, is different. Although still a secret, it's not a closely guarded secret any longer. We might call it an open secret. We might say that it's a secret that's hiding in plain sight. In this context, mystery is a truth previously hidden from human knowledge and understanding, but now disclosed through the revelation of God. It's observable for all with eyes to see. And Paul outlines some features of that Mystery. Let's look at them, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. First of all, it's made known by revelation, verses 3, verse 5. It's not something humanly discoverable. It's not some formula that we logically figure out. No, God has revealed this. Second, it's made possible through Christ. It's not humanly designed. It's not something that we invent. God does this through Christ, the Son of God. Three, it comes new in the New Testament era post-Christ. It's not something that existed in previous times, verse 5. And it comes through the ministry of those Paul calls the apostles and the prophets. It's not generally discernible for all, but through what they have communicated, chiefly in the scriptures now, we understand what God is doing. So the mystery is divinely revealed, it's focused on Christ, it's new in this age, and it's communicated by a select group. And yet, the mystery is now an open secret. What's the mystery? In short, the mystery is the complete union of Jew and Gentile with each other through union with Christ. Because those two groups of people have been offered salvation, redemption through Christ, they are now part of the same body. They have moved from sworn enemies to cherished friends, to siblings. The unthinkable has happened. You might sit here this morning and say, but, but Mike, was this actually new? Wasn't this already known? 
Didn't generations prior know it? Of course, we ask those questions with hindsight. We ask those questions with the full canon, the complete word of God in our hands. But that wasn't true or known for all the early Christians. This was jaw-dropping stuff. There were hints, but it wasn't fully revealed. Yes, in the Old Testament, God revealed something about his plan and purpose for the Gentiles. For instance, in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, communicates blessing to him. He would be blessed so that through he, him and his family, they would be a blessing to the earth. Psalm chapter 2 says that the Messiah would come and have the nations as an inheritance for himself. The nations meaning the Gentiles. Psalm 67 speaks of Israel being a light to the nations that the nations would praise him. May all the peoples praise you. A wonderful psalm of God's salvation. So, so the Gentiles were very much in the mind of God, in the plan of God from the beginning, including his plan through Israel. But what neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the theocracy, the Jewish nation under God's rule, would be terminated and replaced by a new international community called the church. It was this complete union of Jew and Gentile and Christ radically new. Verse 6 here is the capstone of the entire section. Put simply, Paul writes here that the Gentiles are equal heirs as God's chosen people, are equal members of Christ's body, are equal partners in God's promise. Gentiles come on equal footing and of equal value with equal need at the foot of the cross and they're offered salvation too. This is no longer separate and unequal. This is no longer separate but equal. This is divinely united and fully equal, Jew and Gentile. Put simply, the new element here is that Gentiles do not have to become like Jews to receive salvation. This is the mystery revealed, and this is made possible through Christ, Paul writes. Through the gospel, all the families of the earth should not only be blessed, in Abraham's offspring, but also counted among his children. There's a difference between receiving benefits and receiving belonging. It's a bit like the difference between the college boyfriend who comes to visit his girlfriend's family for Christmas and the son-in-law who comes for the same purpose. That the college boyfriend may come, he may get some good meals, he may get some goodwill, he might even get a good present for Christmas. But it's a whole new ball game when he comes as part of the family. See, when he marries the daughter, when he joins the family, he belongs now to the family. So it's not just kindness, it's not just blessing for him to be around, it's now expected. He's part of the family, he belongs. And so it is with the Gentiles. They would not only receive the benefits like that lucky boyfriend who shows up, they would receive status because they're full family members. How does this happen? Through Christ. 
Moses, the prophets in the Old Testament, looked forward to Christ. The Old Testament predicted God's blessing to the ends of the earth, his salvation. Abraham was promised blessing so that they would be blessed. But it was only through Christ that this salvation was made possible. A salvation that reconciles Jew and Gentile to be part of the same people of God. This was unthinkable. The unthinkable happened. The Holy Spirit reveals it and the apostles and prophets are the announcers. No wonder then that this theme dominates Paul's writing. This is breaking news again and again. This is a news alert. We see it elsewhere in Paul's writing. At the end of the majestic letter to the Romans, chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, we read this. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with, here it is, the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to obedience that comes from faith. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Or the sister letter to the Colossians. Chapter 1, also verses 25 to 27. Paul writes, I've become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Here it is. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. See it? This is the nature of the mystery of the gospel. So then what's the purpose of this mystery? Second point, the mystery's purpose, God highlights his wisdom through the church. In verses 7 and 8 and 9, Paul describes in a series of couplets here the significance of this mystery. The first has to do with who he is. Paul calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ, but also a servant of the gospel. And servants know they're not the main attraction. Something else is the main attraction, and their job is to highlight, to point to that something or someone else. On Wednesday of this past week, I, along with some others, was in a carpet store not far from Ephesus. And I have to say that the presentation and the presenters were nothing short of outstanding. The owner showed us with some of his workers how the carpets are made and how they're so valuable. And then we sat in a room and the carpets all came out stunning in size and in, in quality and especially in vivid color. One by one, in rapid succession, the workers would unravel the carpets to our oohs and ahs. The way they moved, the way they carried, the way they displayed these carpets were impressive. If someone has 10 or 20 grand to give me, I'll buy you a carpet. <laughs> these workers weren't looking for praise, though. Why? Because they knew their role. It wasn't the workers, but the carpets that were in the spotlight. And so it is with gospel servants like Paul and, dare I say, like us. Our calling is to highlight the gospel. We're not the main attraction. The gospel is. No wonder Paul then could write that he is less than the least of all the saints. 
He said, I'm not only a servant, I'm a pauper. I bring nothing to the table except that which God has given to me. And he's made me belong and he's called me to serve. And Paul never got over the wonder that God could use him. And God can use you too. And that's wonderful. The second couplet here has to do with Paul's role. He speaks of preaching the riches of Christ. And that required that Paul knew the riches, that he spoke the riches, and that he traveled with the riches of Christ. In other words, gospel knowledge, gospel boldness, and gospel mobility. If you're taking notes, write those down. Gospel knowledge, gospel boldness, gospel mobility. And little has changed even to our day. If we are experts in anything, friends, it should be the gospel. Every one of us who knows Jesus Christ ought to have a solid grasp of the gospel. And every one of us should be prepared with a good elevator speech of the gospel. So that if somebody asks us in life, what do you believe? What animates your life? What makes you tick? We're not flustered or tongue-tied. It's a bit like in school when the teacher tells you in advance of the quiz, in advance of the test, this question will be on the test. If you do poorly, whose fault is it? It's yours. As followers of Jesus Christ, this question will be posed to you, the New Testament says, again and again, from people who watch and observe and are skeptical or curious. Do you know what you'll say? If we're not ready, if we're not confident with how our story fits into God's story of salvation for us and for the nations, we only have ourselves to blame. John Stott writes, once we are sure that the gospel is both truth from God and riches for mankind, nobody will be able to silence us. And they couldn't silence Paul. They couldn't suppress Paul. He had to share the good news. And we should be mobile with the gospel. Not just know it, not just speak it, but be mobile. Our motto should be have gospel, will travel. Workplace, neighborhood, family, hobbies, We'll go with the gospel wherever God takes us, including for some cross-culturally. Paul's a proclaimer, and he's also an enlightener. He shines the light on the gospel. That's the, the literal meaning of that phrase in your Bible, to make plain the mystery. Paul's ministry, and ours, Tom Julian writes, is not to try to make men more sensitive to the message. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our work is to bring enough light to record a clear image. You can't make people receptive. You can't make people embrace. But you can shine the light of the gospel so it's clear that they may see it. The last of these little couplets is quite simple. We might even overlook it. That's the fact that Paul says not once but twice, verse 7 and verse 8, that this is all of the grace given to me. Paul knew that his life and his testimony was nothing but the grace of God. Everything that he had received, everything that he was called to was grace. It was grace that brought him in and it was grace that led him on. By grace, we're called to bear witness on mission. Then we come to verse 10, the bullseye, the centerpiece of the whole passage. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible because it explains, it lays out the grand purpose of the identity, the mission of the church. Read it there. His intent was that now, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. Theologians call this the universal church or church with a capital C. This is everyone who's been called by God to salvation. Everyone who belongs to Christ around the world through the ages who have trusted Christ alone for rescue. If you know Jesus, you're part of that church. And every believer should also be part of a local church, small c, which is an outpost, which is a foretaste of what God is doing in the world through his capital C church. Through the church, God intends to show off his manifold wisdom. Manifold is too weak of a term in English. The idea is many colored. It was used back in the original language to describe a bouquet of flowers or a series of crowns or embroidered cloth or woven carpets. In fact, this word was used to translate into Greek the the phrase about Joseph and his coat of many colors. There was a spectrum of brilliance in the wisdom of God through the church. To put it more vividly, the church, this multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic entity, is like a beautiful tapestry. Or as Tony Evans says, the church is like a prism displaying the rich colors of God's manifold wisdom. If you've ever looked at a diamond, you, you see the colors and the array of brilliance that extends. So it should be with the church. So how do we show this? What's so impressive about the church? I mean, we live in a world that is full of of tension and conflict. And yet God, through the church, is showing an alternative. He's showing a different way. He's showing his brilliance by putting a collection of people together like us who may have little or nothing in common except for Jesus Christ. But if we have Jesus, it unites us in the deepest way. And when we show that off in visible form, in our relationships and commitment and allegiance, not only to him, but to one another, we show the world something profound. And yet the audience that Paul writes about is not primarily a human audience, though that's true. But the audience is the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. In other words, the angels... And the demons, the good and bad spiritual beings, are taking notes, are being brought to school to see what God is doing. The Bible tells us that even the angels long to look into these things to understand what God is doing. And the demons see what God is doing through the church and they are reminded of their eventual end. Their defeat is imminent. And all that is as the unseen world observes us. How cool is that? How awesome is that? How significant is that? That they watch us to see the wisdom of God. This changes everything. This transforms how we think and how we act and how we believe if we're part of God's people through faith in Christ. This cautions us about our priorities. This fuels our loyalties to each other. 
This rebukes our grudges and the petty unforgiveness that tempts us. This requires our humility in the body of Christ. Above all, this should give us a strong sense not of me, but of we. Together, we're displaying the wisdom of God to the invisible beings through the ages. The question is, what are they seeing in us? John Stott is one of my mentors from afar in life through his writing and leading and living. He's, I've never met him. He's been dead for 10 years, living with his Lord now. But I've, I'm continually amazed at how he can memorably apply the scriptures. And I'd like you to see that in several quotes from his writing. In light of verse 10, Stott summarizes like this. History is the theater. The world is the stage. The church members in every land are the actors. God himself has written the play and he directs and produces it. And who are the audience? They are the cosmic intelligences, the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, spectators of the drama of salvation. You and I are not the spectators. You and I are the actors in God's grand drama. Wow. Then Stott challenges us to to rethink our view of history and how we understand the world and how we judge what's important in life. He writes, secular history concentrates on wars and battles and peace treaties, followed by yet more wars and battles and peace treaties. The Bible concentrates rather on the war between good and evil, on the decisive victory won by Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness, on the sovereign proclamation of amnesty for all rebels who will repent and believe. History says what you see on the news is most important. The gospel, the Bible says, what you see in the church is most important because Jesus Christ has won and this is his team and those who belong are victors. Is that you? That is the story of history. You and I are tempted to fixate on countries and leaders in the present day. To be real specific, we speak of Russian aggression and Chinese repression and African depression and European obsession. If we're honest, we even look at our own country and we see its flaws and its problems. But followers of Jesus, Paul tells us, are supposed to be looking at history in another way. That we focus on the rise and eventual triumph of the body of Christ, the church. A kingdom that will never end Christ's and our participation in it. See, it all was struck a decisive blow when Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again and changed the course of history. And God has put the church at the center of what he's doing now. That's you and me. Sot writes, finally, the good news of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which Paul preached, is that he died and rose again, not only to save sinners like me, though he did, but also to create a single new humanity, 
Not only to redeem us from sin, but to adopt us into God's family. Not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another. Thus, the church is an integral part of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of a new society, a new community, as well as of a new life. See, this is central to the gospel story. If that's the nature of the church, if this is the purpose of the church, then what's the blessing of the mystery of the church? With this, we close. God invites our bold access to him. Verse 12, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We no longer need to live like the rest of the world, where God is an object of terror, where God invites fear. No, we get to come not to that kind of God, but to a father who invites acceptance and embrace. We're eager to relate with God. We seek out the throne of God whose mercies and grace never end. You and I can live not like the world, but together beseeching our father to care, to guide, and to conquer through the gospel. This verse spells it out. Boldness is the internal attitude and access is the external reality. Because we have boldness, we act upon that by taking advantage of our access to God. You and I no longer approach God with trepidation, but we waltz into his throne room and say, Father, who's for us, would you help us? Does that describe you? Does that describe us? Are we, kind of, are we those kind of confident bold people with our God. The main lesson here in Ephesians chapter 3 is on the centrality of the church of Jesus Christ. For many people, they think of Christianity simply about Jesus, my Bible, and me. But the church, Paul writes, is central to God's purpose. It's central to the gospel. It's central to history. And it's central to his victory shown to the seen and the unseen world. God's mystery is now no mystery at all. It's revealed in us for all to see, both seen and unseen. You and I together are included in the church of Jesus Christ, a walking, talking billboard for those who see to take in, including the unseen world. What's a greater identity, a greater purpose, a greater blessing that we could ever want? Friends, the secret's out. It's hiding in plain sight. God's mystery is revealed through the church, through us. Let's pray. God in heaven, you are the hope of the ages and you are the one who gives us significance and mission. Thank you for the writings of Paul and thank you for the reminder that he gave first to the Ephesians and now throughout the world that those who belong to Jesus Christ never need to wonder what we're here for, why we matter, who we are. Thank you for an outpost of that called Grace Polaris Church. Thank you for the ways in which you've called us individually into your family so that we might collectively, together, corporately as a community, represent the awesome wisdom and power of God. Give us strength 
Give us courage to live that out. And thank you that you even include us to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.